Once again, welcome everyone. Really such a delight to see all of you this evening and to take some time together. And if you're new here, also just want to give a shout out to um, welcome you into our community here, our little community here on this screen this evening. And this evening, I'd, I'd like to begin uh, by sharing with you a passage. It's a part of a sutta. So the suttas are, you could say, the, the earliest strata, strata of literature that we find, or one of the earliest strata of literature, literature that we find in Buddhism. And it's from a sutta that's, uh, uh, the Pali word is adamika, and I want to come back to this word. Yet you're going to hear in the, the segments that I'm sharing with you, this really is a story from a very different time and culture, right? 2,600 years ago. Yet the reason I want to share it with you is because it, it, hopefully you're going to hear how it can gain new dimensions of meaning when told in, in kind of this context of where we're living right now. So just an invitation to get that sense of, What's it like to hear something so far in the past, but something that might uh, be so relevant right now? And as I said, the, the, the title given to the sutta is Adamika, and uh, Dhammika is often translated as righteous or, un, or, or principled, but kind of literally it means uh, being in alignment with the Dhamma or the Dharma, so the Dhamma and Dhammika is Dharma. It's a little bit more of a poetic expression of it. So Adhamika is, is one, when one is not aligned with the Dharma or the Dhamma. And Dhamma is just the Pali pronunciation of the same word. Dharma is in Sanskrit. So this is what the Buddha shares. He says, when people are Adhamika or not in line with the Dharma, the seasons and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. When the winds blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. And, and this word ugly, sometimes uh, it can be understood in terms of ethically ugly. And then the Buddha gives the opposite too. When people are aligned with the Dhamma, Dhammika, the seasons and years proceed on course. When the seasons and years proceed on course, the winds blow on course independently. Dependably. When the winds blow on course independently, the deities do not become upset. When the deities are not upset, sufficient rain falls. When sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. When people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. Isn't that interesting? 
2,600 years ago, and yet for me it gains this new meaning. There's even another passage where there's Buddha, the Buddha's going um, over uh, all the ways, certain things, certain conditions that the forecasters do not know about that prevents the rain from falling. And one of those conditions that prevents the rain from falling that the, the forecasters never tell us about is when people are adamika, when they're not aligned with the Dharma. And I, hopefully this is clear, I, I, I'm assuming in some way, to many of you. To me, it's, it's pointing, at least in one dimension, that how we act, and you can say don't act, shapes and influences this precious planet of ours. Some ways, I, th I, I know that for, for many of you, that that's why you're interested in the Dharma, the Dhamma, of finding a, a new way of being that, that, that influences this world in a different way. And I, I want to be clear, when, I'm, when I share this passage, I, I'm not in the back of my mind holding some, up some idealized notion of the natural world as a vision or aspiration. I think many of you know the natural world can also be beautiful and quite br brutal with its with the dynamics of eating and being eaten so it's not about that but rather a broader sense of ecological systems being in more balance and this is what i love about this this uh this passage from the buddha is is pointing to that oh when i'm more aligned with the dhamma when i show up differently in this world not out of ignorance not out of reactivity kind of open heart that can respond, then ecological systems are more in balance. The broader ecological systems that we're surrounded by and that we're intertwined with. So I, I want to kind of ask, in what ways can we understand our particular species, the species of being a human being, as not being aligned with the Dharma in terms of the impact to the environment. And one way of not being aligned is, you could say, not being ethically aligned in terms of creating unnecessary harm and destruction to, to living beings. And I'm sure many of you are well aware of this, of how there's human systems in place that are causing great destruction to this planet. And being ethically aligned is part of this path that we're exploring. This is part of the Dharma. So for example, there's something called the gradual path or the gradual training that gets repeated over and over and over again in the sutta, sometimes in different iterations. But it's, it's a description of the practices that allow this path to unfold towards awakening, towards freedom. And in many of those um, descriptions of the gradual path or gradual training, there's a, a common stanza that's towards the beginning of the, the gradual training around ethics. And this, this common stanza, it's, it is geared to monastics, but I, I think it also is relevant to us lay practitioners where the Buddha describes someone on the path as someone who has laid down the rod and weapon and dwells conscientious, full of kindness, sympathetic for the welfare of all 
living beings. I love that, full of kindness and this, this resonance. I, I care, I care about all living beings. To set down the rod, the instrument of harm, to set down the weapon. And I, I want to take this a step for, further because I, I, in some in some places uh, we find the Buddha pointed out that stress or harm it arises out of unskillfully perceiving the world. There's a, there's a uh, Pali word for this vipalasa. It's usually translated as distortion, so a kind of distortion of perception. And perceptions are distorted in the sense that that they're ways of perceiving, ways of viewing the world that lead to suffering, to harm. And there's a classical list, list that the Buddha gives, and, and some of you are going to be like, uh, will be familiar with um, some of these notions and be like, oh yeah, this really fits with what I know about the Dharma. So the classical uh, list of distortions of perception are is, it's perceiving something that's impermanent, and the distortion is seeing it as permanent. So the perception is distorted. It's actually impermanent, but we're perceiving it as, as uh, permanent. Or we, or we perceive something that's stressful or filled with suffering, and we perceive it as happiness. So much of the path, right, is, is seeing that, oh, wow, I, that's not leading to happiness in my life. That's leading to suffering. Oh, this, the, the perception is, is uh, not as distorted at that time. Or perceiving something that is selfless as a fixed self. And then lastly, perceiving something that is ugly as, uh, as uh, beautiful. So sometimes we might see ethical behavior. We, we think it's beautiful ethical behavior, but it's rather ugly ethical behavior. These are the classical, the, the four in, in the Vipalasa Sutta, the, the, the four classical distortions of perception. But, you know, when I was reflecting on this, I got, um, I got curious about this. Like, I, 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 I like to think to myself and to reflect, and I think this is important for all of us, is how would the Buddha teach us if he were here today in this present context? Let's say he was on Zoom right now, right? <laughs> and he was going to talk about <laughs> distortions of perception. And I'd be curious, you know, what were the what would be the additional vipalasas? I think those still ring true or are very important for our practice. But what might be some additional vipalasas or distortions of perception that he would give us encouragement around, encouragement to let go of them, and to replace them with more skillful ways of perceiving that would allow us to respond to this troubled yet beautiful world more skillfully. So I want to propose one. This is just my imagination, something that is alive for me that I find it feels onward leading for me on this path and this practice, especially given what's going on kind of with the environmental catastrophe that we're in the midst of. And I think a modern vipalasa distortion of perception is something that's called, at least in some parts of eco-psychology, fragmented perception. 
And fragmented perception, one definition is perceiving experience through the lens of separate beings, separate things. We're, we're dividing and singling out. So this fragmented perception would be adamika. It would not be aligned with the Dharma. And why wouldn't it be aligned with, with the Dharma? Because it would be not aligned in the times when it's leading to more harm and stress. And what would be the opposite of fragmented perception? What would be the perception that would be dhammika, that would be aligned with the Dharma? And that would be to perceive natural patterns of interrelatedness that we're entwined with, perceiving the world of relationality. Or uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uses the word interbeing or interdependence. I'm using all these uh, uh, together here in a, a kind of synonymously, even though there's some slight differences. And, and I, I can find the Buddhist teaching, one of the Buddhist teachings in particular, dependent origination aligns with this in the sense that there's this emphasis that the Buddha gives, the teaching of dependent origination, it, the simplest format of it are these four lines, which is when this arises, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. And hopefully you're hearing, those of you who are on the retreat, it's kind of I'm expanding one of those talks that I gave on this week-long retreat we just did. Hopefully you're hearing that this is just about the natural patterns of interrelatedness. You have soil, you have moisture, you have a seed, you have sunlight. When those arise, oh, a plant arises. When those cease, or some of those cease, the plant ceases. It's about relations, interdependence. And if, if you have an ear for it, you're going to hear this notion of, of dependent origination. It infuses almost all the, really, all of the Buddhist teachings how the path unfolds. The Four Noble Truths is just a description of dependent origination. When there's suffering, well, what's the, the condition there that when, when suffering's there? The kind of con the suffering the Buddha's interested in? Right? Reactivity. And when that ceases, no more suffering. And there's also the, the uh, description that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is a great description of what we call the the perception that is uh, filled with dhammika, that's aligned with the dharma. And I'm sure many of you know it, right? The, he, he gives the example of the piece of paper. And this piece of paper, it's dependently origi originated, arises from a variety of conditions, the sun, the clouds, the rain, the soil, and the tree. So that when you're seeing this piece of paper, there's a sense, there's a feeling sense and an understanding that Oh, this includes the sun, the clouds, the rain, the soil, the tree, the logger and the logger's parents, and the wheat and the logger's bread. The sheet of paper contains all of these relationships. And it contains you and me. There's a relationship right now with what I'm holding up between your eyes and the sheet of paper. It's arising out of relations, or as Eugene Genlin says, interactions first. First, there's an interaction, and then we can see, oh, here's me and here's the piece of paper, but it's co-arising here. This is the more skillful way at times 
of perceiving compared to that fragmented uh, perception. So if you might know the, the writer, uh, Laura Seawall, she, she wrote a, it was back in the 90s, um, I think it was an article entitled The Skill of Ecological Perception. And I'm sharing with you what, what uh, I find to be a kind of ecological perception that we, we can discover uh, that I feel aligns with the Dharma. And this is important, like this is part of our practice is to cultivate more skillful ways of perceiving so that I can show up in the world more skillfully with a quality of responsivity rather than reactivity. Really, for me, it's like showing up in the world in a, from a deeper place rather than mere unskillful, habitual ways of perceiving the world and being in the world. This is the path to be more aligned with the Dhamma, Dhammika, rather than not aligned, ah, Dhammika. And many writers have connected the ecological crisis that we're in the midst of, which is with a kind of distortion of perception. There's just one writer, David Abram, who's written a lot about it. He says, the ecological crisis may be the result of a recent and collective perceptual disorder in our species, a unique form of myopia, which it now forces us to correct. And I, I'm not saying that this is the singular condition that leads to the climate catastrophe right now. I think it's complex. And yet I'm, I'm sympathetic to uh, the importance of changing perception. That is a, I'm not saying this is the solution, but rather a small step that I feel would be onward leading in uh, such a complexity. And here, I think, I think you can hear a, a change of perception here that comes from um, Elmer Ghostkeeper. Elmer Ghostkeeper is, uh, he's an elder from the Paddle Prairie uh, Matisse settlement in Northern Alberta, Canada. And, you know, he, he clearly articulates articulates these different ways of perceiving. He describes in his earlier years when he lived at home in a farming community that was shaped by a Matisse way of, of perceiving the world, his family made a living with the land. And then later on in his life, while doing construction work in, you can kind of say in the resource extraction sector, it was the experience of making a living from the land. There's a way of making a living with the land as opposed to making a living from the land. And he expands on this. You know, he says, during my construction work, wild plants and animals were not viewed as gifts, were not viewed as gifts cre created by the Great Spirit. One had to treat them as things to be destroyed and removed so that deposits of natural gas could be extracted by multinational oil companies for sale as a commodity of exchange. In this mode of production, it was assumed that only human beings possess consciousness. Do you hear that? That's the fragmented perception. That's making a living from the land 
rather than honoring that, uh, the land and making a living with the land. Do you hear how from the land, how there's not a sense of interrelationships, interbeing, dependent origination, it's forgotten. And the harm and suffering that, that arises from that. So to shift, to shift so that I, I can begin to see myself as a being with the land, intertwined with the land, not separate from the land that allows for domination. How do you nourish a perceptual shift like this to deepen it? Because I feel like there's so many different dimensions that we can go deeper and deeper in this perceptual different way of of perceiving as as uh, as I was saying alike likens to ecological perception. So how to do this, how to cultivate the conditions for this to arise. So I just want to name a couple of conditions that I found really important. One is slowing down. And in many ways, when I say slowing down, it's not necessarily about speed. It's more about slowing down into my experience in the presence, in the mindfulness, and intertwining that with a sense of curiosity and receptivity. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but for me, this has uh, become the common thing, is, is for me to step out of habitual ways that I perceive, I need to slow down. Have you noticed when I'm when I'm going when I'm rushing? What's going on? Habitual ways of perceiving the world. That's what my mind is going to default to when it needs to speed up. And so I need to slow down if I'm gonna if I'm interested in in bringing into my system new ways of perceiving to slow down, and then combining that with a sense of curiosity and re receptivity. It's not the same old world I'm perceiving, but it's a new world right now. And with these two conditions, I think there's a few different ways to engage that can help shape perception. One is just through wise reflection. And a, a wise reflection that is sometimes supported by imagination. This practice of wise reflection, I haven't spoken about it a lot, but it's, it's a big part of the path to reflect in a way that we start to understand what's onward leading compared to something that just causes more suffering. And so I want to share with you a, a piece where you can hear some of this wise reflection and what emerges from it. And it's from a, a short story that was uh, written, written by Alison Luterman called What We Came For. Strawberries were too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruised at even too heavy a human touch. It hit her then that every strawberry she had ever eaten, every piece of fruit had been picked by calloused human hands. Every piece of toast with jelly represented someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. Why had no one told her about this before? 
in that passage, can you hear that quality of wisely reflecting? How the character, how she, it feels to me, how she is slowed down enough and there's curiosity and receptivity. And when she is examining the strawberry, right? She, just like with Thich Nhat Hanh, she sees that it's been picked up by calloused human hands, that it represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. That to me is on the road to ecological perception. And to hear the empathy there, right? when I slow down to get a sense of where my food comes from, there's ethical implications there. I, I need to behold, I need to, 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 to acknowledge that I'm in, intertwined with the system that still creates harm. It's not adamika, it's not damika, rather it's adamika. It's not completely aligned with the Dharma. So sometimes wisely reflecting. I think another way is through what I'd call external mindfulness mixed with some reflection. And it can be around the smallest things that gives me a sense of being intertwined with this environment, interrelated, interdependent. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a friend's house that lives down the street here. And uh, Pat, he's like um, so incredibly passionate about gardening. If you ever went to their house, like almost it feels like almost every inch of piece of their land, there's something growing there. And it's incredible. This is all year round. And you're showing us a. Uh, uh, a new greenhouse that he had uh, built, and we went in there. Oh, it's so amazing, so beautiful. I remember the smell and the the quality of there's a little bit of humidity there, and all the 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 vibrant, healthy plants. And he uh, picked he po picked out uh, this huge bok choy for us. Just incredible. And uh, and. It was such a different experience, right? Because when I took it home, there was still the soil all over it and, and that particular soil that was still wet. And then as we pulled the, the leaves away, the small bugs still lodged deep inside. And to slow down and take that in, right? That, that is taking in interrelationship. That's taking in the sense of interbeing. And to feel that, oh, I'm intertwined. I'm interrelated to the soil, to the bugs, to the plants. Oh, this is broader. I have a sense of, of feeling. The, the heart is more alive in this way. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about, right? It feels differently, isn't, doesn't it? When you're in contact like that with a kind of ecological perception, taking in patterns and relationships, the intertwining of our lives with these other things really noticing the relationships between things, the relations between plants, simple patterns. And I want to point out, it could be the simple things, just to notice how plants are so similar in the sense of the budding of plants in the spring. Or even you might have seen some of the, the flowers coming out now, the dropping of leaves in the fall, at least with some plants, how branches and roots reach out 
how other animals like us seek water. So it's seeing our commonality and our differences and that we're rooted in these systems. So I wanna point out, I, I'm offering like these very simple ways of reflection. And then what happens when you engage in them? How does it shift your heart? And I think there's a, even a, uh, a more felt sense, deeper way to get a, a, a taste of this. And I think it really is gonna tie into our meditation that we'll begin here in, in just a minute here. And that's to begin to tune the body to be receptive to this experience of being intertwined, interrelated, commingled with, with the world. And it's interesting, just going back, hearkening back to um, uh, that sutta, the Vipalasa Sutta, about the distortions of perception. The Buddha says, as a result of these distortions, we, um, uh, the Pali word is uh, visanino, which means we have lost our senses. So that literally means what happens. Distorted perceptions, I'm disconnected. I'm out of touch. What's it like to come to your senses again? To come into your senses, simply tuning into the sights and sounds and smells, especially in the natural world. And we'll play with this. I think sometimes, you know, living, you know, in the room that I don't know what the room is like that, that you're in, but it's so box-like. And it's a, it's, it gives a, a, a very interesting spatial awareness compared to when I'm in the natural world. You ever felt the difference there? I hope you do. But what's it like to feel this, the spatial dimensions, yes, of the room you're in, because I think that's a good practice, but also in the natural world? What's the felt sense of that? And not here I am and I'm looking out onto the world, but beginning to feel that I'm intertwined with the environment. I'm participating within it. Because if you noticed, I know my mind can be kind of the outside observer rather than seeing myself and feeling myself in or amongst. Can you start to feel it? When you see a bird, can you recognize the bird sees you? Or as the Zen master I used to practice with would say, um, you know, when you see a flower, the flower sees you. When you behold the flower, the flower is beholding you. What would it be like to enter that world? Even when you see a rock, what would it be like to get the feeling that the rock is seeing, is feeling you? That's ecological perception. That, to me, is dhammika. It's aligned with the dhamma. It carries us forward into... Uh, the world skillfully with a heart that is wise. And some of this, what I'm doing is I'm allowing the boundaries of my sense of self to become much more fluid and porous and permeable. Because what I find is when those are rigid, I am, I feel like I'm outside that world rather than it permeating me, entangling me in a positive way. And also, I want to point out the emotional resonance, especially in the natural world. 
So for me, and I know many of you can uh, uh, relate to this, is have you noticed what happens to your heart when you're when you're touched by the beauty of nature? How it does something physically to us. It's like it opens and settles my heart and my body. There can often, it's in those places where we can have really a sense of, a felt sense of deeply belonging. And at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge and to open to the other feelings that arise, the, the deep despair and pain around the destruction of nature. Maybe some of you here in Flagstaff experienced this just around the tunnel fire or just in the, what was it, the last year or two, where uh, in the surrounding Flagstaff area, the, the, the percentage of uh, juniper pinion uh, areas, the death rate is so huge. Especially if you've driven up to like Tuba City, you'll pass that, that place where you see just an immense amount of, of death there. We're asked to also open to that. You know, Joanna Macy says, to give full attention to the perils confronting our world invites an almost excruciating tension. It is the tension between seeing the enormity of the peril, such as climate chaos, mass extinctions, and seeing the inadequacy of our response to it. It takes courage to endure these, these tensions, yet endure them we must. For to be conscious enough to act responsibly requires being awake to the possibility of failure. And this opens up, I think, a, a, another realm that I think is important around this discussion is just opening up the space for not only the joys and the beauty of being touched by the environment, but the grief, because sometimes that's left unsaid. And Bayokomalafe, who's written quite a bit about this, speaks to the importance of, of, uh, of grief and spaces for grieving. He's talking about the, the climate, climate chaos here. He says, I think of grief as a falling apart, not as a falling apart only in human terms, but as a falling apart that is part of the motions, part of the processes that is stitched into the fabric of matter itself. Unfortunately, in modern settlements, we hardly have spaces for falling apart. We don't know how to stay in the indeterminacy and the slowness of the compost. We want to get back into the game quickly. Applied to the climate change discourse, you can sense the techno-materialist machine doing its work all over again, producing bits, binaries, ones, and zeros. It's either climate justice or climate chaos. That's it. That's all this machine produces. And if I wonder, and I wonder if there aren't worlds in between that we were not able to notice. I wonder if the trickster isn't beckoning at the wilds beyond our fences, wanting us to dance between the binary, between the ones and the zeros, to notice a place for climate grief. What if that was actually an objective of UNESCO? You know, to gather people together 
and to just grieve. Isn't that striking? To play a place to fully feel, to fully feel with support. And of course I'd expand it, yeah, to feel the grief and the beauty, both the joys and sorrows. And I feel this is part of the Dharma. This is part of Dhammika. This is part of Sangha and our meditation to learn to feel the joys and sorrows with support, whether that's with support of community, with support of meditation, with the support of equanimity and compassion. A space to feel so that we're aligned with the Dharma. So thank you, thank you for your attention. Okay, so we'll begin again here. If you can hear the sound of my voice, we'll begin to meditate. And, and I'll, I'll bring into this meditation maybe just a, a couple elements that might help evoke uh, just a little bit of this uh, ecological perception and then intertwining it with our mindfulness practice. And also connecting it with feeling supported with whatever we're feeling. In light of this, I invite you to allow your attention to come inward. And to begin by simply feeling the body in whatever posture it's in. I invite you to allow the body to relax. So you might want to relax certain parts of the body, for example, allowing the shoulders to drop and the jaw to loosen. Or you might want to allow the hands to relax. We're allowing the pelvic floor to settle, to settle downward and open. I now invite you to feel the weight of the body, that your body has weight, it has a solidity and weight to it. And as you feel that weightedness, it's like to acknowledge and to perceive what you're feeling is actually a relationship. It's not some singular experience. It's the relationship between the body and the earth. The earth, she is literally pulling your body towards her. 
It's also called gravity, but I think there's something more poignant and powerful and maybe even more accurate about feeling the earth as she pulls you towards her. And as you continue to feel that relationship with the earth, I invite you to feel, you know, you don't have to so much see, but to feel into the space in front of you, to the space to the sides of you and the space behind you, to feel yourself in this spatial relationship. You're situated in a particular way, probably in relation to certain walls in the home that you're in, or in relationship to a desk or a plant, or to a ceiling and a floor. Feeling the body in this space in relationship to the other things in the space. Allowing yourself to feel your body among other bodies of things rather than separate. I now invite you to feel the body as the earth, as a manifestation of the earth. Just as the seed of the tree sprouts from the earth and rises up from the earth, your body has literally risen from this earth and is upon the earth. And it is just the earth. All of the elements in your body that your body is composed of arose from this earth. Can you perceive that? to get a feeling sense, a felt sense of that as you feel the body.
in some ways just like a plant or a tree. I now invite you to allow these beginning elements of an ecological perception or an ecological sense of oneself just to be in the background. And then continuing as you might usually do with your practice of mindfulness, practice of meditation and the way that fits for you. And if you want to go back to that ecological sense whenever as we now meditate in silence together.
And if you find your mind lost in thought, you might just want to begin with some of these ecological senses of our experience. So feeling the earth pull you toward her. Feeling the space around you, even above and below. A feeling sense that you're a being among other beings, an object among other objects in relationship. And the felt sense of the body as earth, like a tree that emerges from the earth herself. As you continue to meditate.
At this point, we'll transition, and in particular, transition into a practice of receiving and offering kindness. So if you do need to move the body briefly right now, feel free to do so or change your posture. Feel free to do so. And then when you get situated, allowing the attention to come inward and once again, just feeling the body, whatever posture it's in. Checking in to see if it's helpful to allow the body to relax right now. And I invite you to begin to imagine, in particular, to imagine that the earth is offering you kindness. In particular, you might want to explore this through the breath. So each time you breathe in, what you're breathing in is the kindness of the earth. With each breath, she's taking care of you. And on each in-breath, to imagine that the kindness is filling the body. So that there's like a, a vibration of kindness, ever so su subtle and slight, that you can feel nourishing the body. Feeling that on the in-breath. And imagining on the out-breath of that vibration, that feeling, that energy of kindness, is settling and suffusing the body. Breathing in, being filled with kindness. Breathing out, the kindness is settling into the body, nourishing the body. Continue in this way, savoring the kindness of the earth. Allowing this to put a slight smile on your face as you continue to savor being filled with kindness and settling into the feeling of kindness.
I now invite you to add one more dimension to vary just one aspect of this. So continuing to receive the kindness of the earth on the in-breath. And now instead on the out-breath, offering that kindness to others, to other living beings, to the earth herself, even to the universe. Receiving kindness, offering kindness in rhythm with the breath as you continue now in silence. And as you continue, you might want to allow the breath to become uh, just a bit more subtle. Yet feeling the fullness of receiving and offering kindness in that subtle feeling of the breath as well. <clears throat> 